Hey, this is Tony Merkel, host of The Confessionals, a blog talk radio podcast that brings you weekly interviews with eyewitness accounts of strange and unexplained events. From paranormal activity to UFO encounters to Bigfoot sightings, step into The Confessionals as we explore mysterious real-life stories. Check us out on your favorite podcast app or theconfessionalspodcast.com. And many thanks to Weird Darkness for having me on the air. I'll see you all on The Confessionals. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Firefighters were called to a scene near Lake Springfield in central Illinois one early Sunday morning in August 1992. When they arrived, they found a dilapidated old building that had been closed for years completely engulfed in flames. The fire, which later turned out to have been deliberately set, destroyed a place called the Lake Club, a once grand restaurant and nightclub that had been out of business since the 1960s. Other businesses had come and gone in the building since the demise of the club, but most people recalled the 1940s and 1950s as the golden age of the Lake Club. It was from this time period that stories of big bands, live radio shows, and illegal gambling emerged as fond remembrances of yesterday. But it was also during this time that the stories of the club's resident ghost emerged, a tragic nightclub employee who simply refused to leave. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. And if you already consider yourself a part of the Weirdo family, please help me get the word out by sharing a link to this episode with friends, family, and others in your social media, and thanks in advance for doing so. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Due to a murderous plot, 11-year-old Terry Joe Duperalt spent 84 grueling hours alone at sea until she was rescued. Moving into your own place alone for the first time is often an exciting moment in a young adult's life, but it can also be a bit nerve-wracking. But then it probably doesn't help if you move into a place that is haunted. The true story of Rasputin is full of both truths and lies. Was he a controversial mystic with healing powers or an evil or misunderstood man? Maybe he was a little of both. And the Lake Club in Springfield, Illinois, had its heyday in the 1940s and 50s, and not even a lingering ghost could stop the partying. We begin with that story. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness.
The Lake Club opened as a nightclub in 1940, but the building on Fox Bridge Road had seen many incarnations in the years prior to that, including as several restaurants and even a skating rink called the Joy Inn. In 1940, two dance promoters named Harold Henderson and Hugo Giovignoli renovated the place and opened it for business as the Lake Club. The club soon became one of the hottest night spots in Illinois, drawing customers from all over the state. It boasted a raised dance floor surrounded by a railing, with curved walls and a swanky atmosphere that made patrons feel as though a New York club had been transported to the shores of Lake Springfield. The owners concentrated on bringing big-name entertainment to the club and succeeded. Among the many top performers were Bob Hope, Ella Fitzgerald, Guy Lombardo, Pearl Bailey, Spike Jones, Nelson Eddy, Woody Herman, Mickey Rooney, and many others. The constant stream of entertainers and big bands brought capacity crowds to the club every night. During the height of its popularity, the club even hosted a radio call-in show that broadcast music and entertainment all over the area live. The Lake Club thrived for nearly two decades, becoming known not only for its swinging entertainment but for its first-rate gambling as well. Wealthy customers and the society elite of Springfield and Decatur frequented the club for the musical guests and also for the billiard tables, craps and gaming tables, slot machines and card games. This part of the club operated in secret in a back part of the building, known only to high rollers and special customers. However, in December 1958, the golden days of the Lake Club came to an end. The partners had survived many setbacks over the years, from lawsuits to foreclosures, but the club would not survive the two undercover detectives who gained access to the gambling rooms that Christmas season. The club was immediately shut down, although patrons continued dining and dancing while the actual raid was going on. The two state troopers who entered the gambling rooms were the first police officers to arrive, but many more followed. Newspaper accounts reported the police confiscated all sorts of gambling equipment, including tables, dice, slot machines, and large quantities of cash. The billiard tables were so large they had to be dismantled to get them out of the room. Business began to falter in the wake of the raid, and the place finally closed down in the 1960s. Giovignoli blamed the failure of the club on the gambling crackdown, always maintaining that the entertainment had been just part of the club's appeal. However, he refused to give up. Despite his partner Harold Henderson's death in 1977, Giovignoli managed to open the club again, with other parties managing different projects in the building. During this next popular time in the club's history, it was managed by Bill Carmian, and Tom Blasco as a rock club. In 1980, it was leased by Pat Tavine, who also operated it as a rock club until 1988, when it closed down for good. The Lake Club was destroyed in the fire just a few years later. It was in August 1979 that the Lake Club, known in 1980 when the story came out as the Sober Duck Rock and Disco Club, gained national notoriety. It was at this time when the ghost of Albert Rudy Craner was finally put to rest. 
According to the many patrons and staff members who had experiences there, the haunting of the Lake Club first began in 1974. At the time, the club was in the midst of a revival in interest, and the business was under the ownership of Tom Blasco and Bill Carmian, two Springfield men who were booking rock acts into the club. The building itself was still owned by Hugo Giovignoli and Harold Henderson. Bill Carmian was the first to notice that something strange was going on at the club. Both he and Tom Blasco had experienced cold chills in the building, along with hearing odd sounds and getting feelings of being watched in certain rooms. One afternoon, he came into the club and sat down at the bar with the lights off. Suddenly, he heard the sound of a piano being played in another room. He got up to see who else was in the building with him, and as he stepped into the room, the music stopped. The room was completely empty. Weird things continued to happen. Often, on Monday nights while Carmian would be in the building going over the weekend receipts, he would hear a door near the office open and footsteps crossing the floor. He would jump from his seat to see who was there, but the hallway was always empty. Carbian also remembered a salesman visiting his office one evening when a glass flew off a table and hit the wall on the opposite side of the room. The salesman left in a hurry. By 1976, the haunting had intensified and things began happening more often and in front of more witnesses. A club bartender was pouring a drink one night when the glass in front of him suddenly shot up into the air and landed over his shoulder. A waitress also experienced the antics of the ghost one night when she went to serve a drink to a customer, only to find the glass inexplicably filled with chocolate. She would later insist the glass had been absolutely clean when she handed it to the bartender. Carmian was the first of the club's staff to guess the identity of the ghost who was plaguing the club. He recalled that a former employee had committed suicide in the building several years before. On a lark, he started calling the ghost by this man's name, which was Rudy. Albert Rudy Cranor had worked at the Lake Club during its heyday of the 1940s and 50s. He was described as being well-liked and popular with the entertainers and the customers. He was a very large man, well over 250 pounds, and he had snow-white hair. He was remembered as one of the club's most memorable characters, and even 50 years later, people still remember him. They speak fondly of him and recall him as a nice man and their favorite bartender. After the club fell on hard times following the gambling raid, Rudy also began experiencing some personal difficulties. He was a very private person, so no one really knew what was going on, but they did notice that he began to drink heavily while on the job. They also began to notice some changes in his personality and appearance. He seemed to be more tired than usual, and dark circles had begun to appear under his eyes. Then, one night, he became sick and had to be rushed to the hospital. It took several men to carry him downstairs to the ambulance. He returned to the club after a two-week stay in the hospital, but he was never the same again. On June 27, 1968, Rudy shot himself with a high-powered rifle in one of the back rooms at the club. He died in the hospital the next morning 
never regaining consciousness. No one was ever sure why Rudy had killed himself, but regardless, he wouldn't stay gone for long. In a few short years, he would return to haunt his beloved club. The strange events at the club continued in the form of weird antics and pranks, apparently carried out by the ghost of Rudy Cranor. One night, Tom Blasco placed a pile of tablecloths on an empty table and left the room. When he came back, the clothes were on the floor. He picked them up and left again, only to return moments later and find them once again on the floor. This was repeated several times until Blasco finally gave up and left them on the floor. Employees and visiting musicians also reported strange occurrences, like doors opening and closing by themselves, the sounds of footsteps in empty rooms, a drink that had lifted off a table and then dumped in a customer's lap, office equipment that operated on its own, feelings of being poked and prodded by unseen hands, and numerous other bizarre happenings. A frightening event took place in the summer of 1977 when Barbara Laird, a waitress at the club, had an encounter with Rudy himself. She was working one evening and went to the bathroom behind the back office. As she came out, she glanced over the back bar and saw Rudy looking at her. She described what she saw as just a head, hanging there in space, and although she could see through it, the head appeared lifelike. She said that the apparition had snow-white hair and she had never known heard about or had even seen a photograph of the late bartender at the time. The apparition looked at her for a moment and then spoke, telling the waitress that one of the owners of the club was going to die. This was not a threat, Laird recalled later, but merely a warning. The waitress ran out of the room in tears, visibly shaken and close to hysterics. Other staff members who saw her that night reported that she was very frightened and she was not a person known for being hysterical or easily frightened. Tom Blasco later stated that he went back into the room after Laird's encounter and claimed to feel the same bone-chilling cold that he always associated with Rudy's spirit. Needless to say, Blasco and Carmian were more than a little unnerved by the ghost's warning. By this time, they had no doubt the ghost was real and that the club was genuinely haunted. Because of this, they also had no reason to doubt that Barbara Laird's encounter had been real. Her description of the late Rudy Craner had been too accurate to have been imagined. The two men waited and probably were more careful than usual when doing things like driving to work or climbing ladders. Then, two weeks after the incident, Harold Henderson, one of the original owners of the club, died at the age of 69. He was still the owner of the building itself and was an owner that Rudy would have known during his lifetime. The incident would shake Blasco more than anyone else. He had spent two weeks living in fear for his life, and he felt that it was time to get rid of the ghost if possible. Perhaps Rudy had been trying to be helpful with his warning, but Blasco didn't really care. He contacted a woman he knew was interested in the occult and she suggested that he ask a priest for help. Blasco was a practicing Catholic, but when he contacted his parish priest, the man declined to become involved. He suggested that Blasco pray for Rudy on his own, 
and Tom spent the next six months carrying a rosary around the club with him. But it didn't help. Rudy was still there. Finally, in August 1979, Blasco attended a high school class reunion and ran into one of his former classmates, Reverend Gary Dilly, a priest who now lived in Fort Worth, Texas. Tom mentioned the problems at the club to Father Dilly, and the priest was intrigued. After some discussion, he agreed to come out to the club and take a look around. He said later that he believed Blasco was sincere about what he said was happening. He had known the man for many years and had never thought of him as a hysterical type of person. After arriving at the club, Father Dilly also sensed something out of the ordinary there. He experienced some unexplained cold chills and felt as if someone was watching him. He said in a later interview, I also had the feeling that someone was trying to communicate with me. The priest questioned several of the club's employees and found that their stories were very similar. He knew they had not had time to compare notes before he spoke with them. He was convinced that something was going on, but he declined to do an exorcism of the club. To do that, the case would require a thorough investigation and permission from the local bishop, which he doubted he would get. Instead, he decided to bless the place and pray there, hoping this would perhaps put Rudy to rest. Father Dilly contacted two other priests to take part in the ceremony, Father John Corradato of Kankakee and Father Gerald Leahy of Griffin High School in Springfield. The three men were quick to point out that they were merely trying to bless the building, to clear out any negative spirits, and to help at least one very restless soul to find peace. The three priests went from room to room in the club, blessing each with holy water and praying. They asked that any negative spirits depart from the building, and they prayed specifically for Rudy Cranor. They entered the room in which he had committed suicide and prayed that his spirit be at rest. So, was that the end of the haunting? Apparently it was. The same people who considered the club to be haunted were now sure that Rudy had departed. The day of the religious ceremony was the last day when anyone was aware of Rudy's presence in the building. It seemed that the prayers and blessings had helped the bartender find his way to the other side. It certainly seemed possible that Rudy might have chosen to stay behind in a place where he had many attachments in life. Perhaps the intervention of the priests was all he needed to be convinced to move on. Once Rudy was gone, some staff members realized they hadn't minded his ghost as much as they had once thought. In a 1980 newspaper interview, Tom Blasco said, In a way, I sort of miss Rudy. We were all fond of him. It's been pretty quiet since the priests were here. Sometimes I wish that I hadn't asked them to come. Missed or not, Rudy finally found some peace and release from his suffering. Somewhere on the other side. Rasputin His true story is a mix of lies and truths. When a man's life story contains plots, controversies, intrigues, and rumors, 
it's difficult to grasp how everything started and ended. We must rely on experts and books to get to the bottom of the mystery of Rasputin. But how far can we get? We can say with certainty that Grigory Rasputin was one of the most intriguing, yet least understood, historical persons in Russia. He had a strong influence on the Tsar family and his power led to his death. It is said that he was a holy man, a prophet with healing powers, and it seemed almost impossible to kill him. He survived several assassination attempts before he was brutally murdered by a group of conspirators. Was he an evil or misunderstood man? The exact date of birth of Grigory Rasputin is uncertain, but it's assumed that he was born in the late 1860s. He was a child of a peasant family living in Siberia. It seems that he was an uneducated boy as his family did not have the funds or maybe the desire to send young Rasputin to school. According to some historians, Rasputin never learned how to read and write, but author Colin Wilson, who wrote the book Rasputin and the Fall of the Romanovs, stated that Rasputin had little schooling, although his father taught him the rudiments of reading, he could see no point in learning to write. He hated discipline, he preferred fishing or swimming to sitting over books. He never learned to write properly, letters in his handwriting show an awkward, childish scrawl. In those days, he may have been a typical boy, one who had some minor encounters with the law. In the eyes of Praskova Dubrovina, he was worthy enough to marry, and she bore him five children, though only three survived. Rasputin supported them all by working on the family farm in the early years of their marriage. It was his interest in religion that started him down the road that would lead to fame and eventually his demise. Before Rasputin had the privilege of meeting the Tsar family, he spent many months in a monastery. Although he was referred to as a holy man, a mystic, and the mad monk, he never took the final vows to become a monk. To name him the Mad Monk is incorrect, but that was what his enemies called him anyway. Rasputin made several trips to the Holy Land, sought out religious leaders in his search for God. His strong personality and charisma influenced many who heard him. As his popularity grew, so did his supporters and, eventually, enemies. Rasputin had so many followers that he began to build a little church, so he could teach and preach with ease but his view on religion became slightly twisted. Wilson revealed that the Russian mystic became obsessed with asceticism and the idea of pilgrimage. It took Rasputin some years before he came to the attention of Russia's royal family. In 1903, Rasputin, often called the Wanderer, came to St. Petersburg. By now, he was a well-known mystic and faith healer. It was said that he possessed unusual healing powers, He'd healed the family dog of one of the relatives of the Russian Tsar, Nicholas II. News about this extraordinary mystic and the great gifts he held reached the Tsar, who in 1905 decided to invite Rasputin to join his royal court. The Tsar family had a sick child who suffered from hemophilia. Surely Rasputin could help them cure the youngster, they thought. The healing of the young boy is just one of the controversies that surrounded Rasputin. The stories range from him stopping the aspirin being administered to the young lad, 
to his laying on hands, to kneeling and praying for the boy, and finally to using peasant folk medicine. We may never know what Rasputin actually did, but the child's health did improve, and the young man was cured. It's no wonder, then, that the grateful Tsar and his wife invited Rasputin to stay with them long-term. Rasputin became a close friend to the Tsar family, and the royal couple found comfort in his advice and counseling. Fame and jealousy often go hand-in-hand. Rasputin was not immune to this fact. When Rasputin's rise in influence over the royal family became obvious, it created jealousy in church leaders, government officials, and the elite members of society. Because of this jealousy, there are several stories surrounding Rasputin that may or may not be true. Rasputin suddenly became a target of all possible controversies and accusations. It was said he was a member of the Kylists, a group believing that to get close to God they had to practice debauchery and other sins. His daughter Maria refuted that notion and said that Rasputin rejected the sect and did not like their thinking at all. One vicious rumor had Rasputin in a very lurid affair with the Tsar's wife, Alexandra. Other rumors had him working with the Germans against the Russians and starting a cholera epidemic using imported Canadian apples. There seemed to be no ending to the accusations against Rasputin, but how much was true is difficult to determine today. Wilson reminds all readers interested in Rasputin that original source material is scanty. The revolution came shortly after his death, and the historians of the Soviet government were more interested in denigrating Nicholas II than in historical accuracy. Most of the books about Rasputin that were published outside Russia were cheap, sensational biographies that made no pretense of detachment. Despite the lack of proper information, most historians agree that a group of conspirators started to develop a plot how to murder the Russian mystic. One of the main figures in the assassination plot was Prince Felix Yusupov, a Russian aristocrat who married the niece of Tsar Nicholas II. When Rasputin survived several assassination attempts, people got scared, thinking this holy man must be immortal, but they were wrong. In his book, To Kill Rasputin, The Life and Death of Grigory Rasputin, author Andrew Cook describes how Rasputin, on the night of December 29, 1916, was invited to meet some would-be friends who wanted to murder him. Prince Yusupov and the Tsar's first cousin, Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, gave Rasputin poison, but it had no effect on him. Rasputin had eaten all the cakes and drunk two glasses of poisoned wine and nothing has happened, Cook writes. Absolutely nothing. Rasputin was belching and dribbling, but that was about it. The killers shot him several times, but to their astonishment Rasputin survived and fled. But he didn't get far. He was seriously wounded, fell in the snow-clad courtyard, and the great mystic knew death was inevitable. Rasputin died in the Moika Palace. His killers wrapped his body in a carpet and threw it in the Neva River, where it was discovered three days later. When examined by a coroner, it was found that Rasputin had water in his lungs and was alive at the time he was thrown in the water. Russia's great mystic was gone. Some saw it as liberation, 
others were sad. But Rasputin's dead voice could still be heard through his prophecy. Shortly before he died, he wrote the Tsar, telling him, If I am killed by common men, you and your children will rule Russia for centuries to come. If I am killed by one of your stock, you and your family will be killed by the Russian people. Rasputin's prophecy came true 15 months later. The whole Tsar family, the Tsar, his wife, and all their children were murdered by assassins during the Russian Revolution. Some suspected one of the daughters survived, Anastasia, and many women stepped forward claiming to be the daughter of the Tsar. No one could provide enough evidence, though. Was Rasputin a mad, evil charlatan, or was he a misunderstood man born ahead of his time? His life is colorful, and his personality captivated the public, then and now. Hundreds of books have been written about Russia's greatest mystic. No one knows his true story. If you want to learn more about Rasputin, read some biographies. But remember, they all present a slightly different story. Keep listening, there's more Weird Darkness to come. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the paranormal audiobook Your Haunted Lives – True Tales of the Paranormal by G. Michael Vasey, a collection of creepy, often downright chilling, true experiences of the paranormal submitted by visitors to the My Haunted Life 2 website. The tales have been carefully selected and edited and range from apparitions to hauntings to demons through to the downright bizarre. This terrific collection of true stories of the paranormal will keep you looking over your shoulder. Your Haunted Lives – True Tales of the Paranormal Written by G. Michael Vasey Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar Hear a free sample by clicking the link in the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. But rather than me telling you about it, how about I let one of our weirdo family members tell you about it? Kitty sent me a comment saying, My husband works out of state the majority of the time, and when he left, he wanted to take his my pillow with him. That's how much he loves his. Well, Kitty is trying out her own pillow right now as well, because she heard about them on Weird Darkness and was able to get two premium my pillows for one low price. And so can you. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD. That's MyPillow.com, then use the promo code WEIRD, or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192, or MyPillow.com. Either way, be sure to use the promo code WEIRD. In the summer of 2002, I moved into a little apartment in a small town in Massachusetts. With the exception of the previous few months, thanks to lease complications with my former landlord, I had been out of my parents' house for years, but I'd always had roommates. This was my first apartment by myself, and I was really looking forward to being alone. 
It was a cozy first-floor apartment with a private garden entrance at the rear of an old house that had been converted into four apartments, and I loved it. That first night that I moved in was wonderful. My friends had all gone home after beer and pizza, and I was left alone. I had electricity and hot water, but no cable TV or phone for dial-up internet. I took a long, hot shower and read a book until I felt sleepy and then proceeded to enjoy one of the best night's sleep I've ever had. Independence and quiet are wonderful things. The next night, things started to change. As I said, this was an old house, and as such, the closet door in my bedroom didn't close properly unless I lifted the doorknob and hip-checked it closed. Opening it was no picnic either. That night, I again fell asleep with a sense of peace and tranquility. But it didn't last. Sometime in the middle of the night, the closet door slammed open, as if someone had kicked it open from the inside, smacked it into the wall, and slammed it shut again. I know this because it happened many more times over the next few weeks. As you can imagine, I was catapulted out of sleep in a panic. I sat upright, staring at the closed closet door, terrified and too petrified to reach for the light in the dark. I probably sat like that for a good 15 minutes before I could move. Once I got the light turned on, I left it on for the remainder of the night. The closet door continued to do its thing as the weeks went on, accompanied by lights turning on in the middle of the night, doors locking on their own, the stereo doing whatever the heck it wanted, cabinet doors all being opened when I got home from work, and other various things. I was not happy, and I didn't know what to do. One Friday night, a friend came over for dinner, and I told him all about my situation, admitting that I was scared and might need to move out already. He told me not to worry about it and that he would have a little chat with my ghost. I was a little uncomfortable with that, but he did insist. I poured myself a glass of wine and went outside to peer through my bedroom window while my friend sat on the floor in front of my open closet and had what appeared to be a one-sided conversation. After about 15 minutes or so, he closed the closet door and signaled to me that he was finished. He wouldn't tell me what he said, but he assured me that my troubles were over. And they were, for five wonderfully peaceful years. In the summer of 2007, I was working on my computer in my bedroom, listening to music and enjoying the warm breeze through the window, when I heard a loud crash from the other end of the apartment. I ran into the kitchen to find a beautiful old ceramic serving platter that I had left on the counter smashed in the middle of the kitchen floor, about five feet from the counter. That was the end of the peace and quiet. For the next ten months, I endured an ever-increasing amount of activity, which even my friend couldn't do anything about. My boyfriend would no longer stay in my apartment alone for more than five minutes, and other friends often said they felt uncomfortable there, even with others around. In the spring of 2008, I moved to another small town in Massachusetts and haven't experienced anything at all to indicate my current home is haunted.
1961, a picture was snapped of a young girl who was discovered adrift, alone on a small lifeboat in the waters of the Bahamas. The story of how she ended up there is much more horrifying and bizarre than one can imagine. When Nikolaos Spachidakis, second officer of the Greek freighter Captain Theo, saw Terry Joe Duperalt, he could barely believe his eyes. He had been scanning the waters of the Northwest Providence Channel, a strait that divides two major islands of the Bahamas, and one of the thousands of tiny, dancing whitecaps in the distance caught the officer's eye. Among the hundreds of other boats in the channel, he focused on that single dot and realized that it was too large to be a piece of debris, far too small to be a boat that would travel that far out to sea. He alerted the captain, who put the freighter on a collision course for the speck. When they pulled up alongside it, they were shocked to discover a blonde-haired 11-year-old girl floating by herself in a small inflatable lifeboat. One of the crew members took a picture of her squinting into the sun, looking up at the vessel that had saved her. The image made the front page of Life magazine and was shared around the world. But how did this young American child find her way to the middle of the ocean all alone? The story begins when her father, a prominent optometrist from Green Bay, Wisconsin, named Dr. Arthur Duperalt, chartered the luxury yacht the Bluebell from Fort Lauderdale, Florida to the Bahamas for a family trip. He brought with him his wife Jean and his kids, Brian, 14, Terry Joe, 11, and Renee, 7. He also brought his friend and former Marine and World War II veteran Julian Harvey as his skipper, along with Harvey's new wife Mary Dean. By all accounts, the trip was going swimmingly, and there was little friction between the two families throughout the first five days of the journey. On the fifth night of the cruise, however, Terry Joe was awoken by screaming and stamping on the deck above the cabin in which she slept. Talking to reporters later, Terry Joe recalled how she went upstairs to see what it was and, quote, I saw my mother and brother lying on the floor and there was blood all over. She then saw Harvey walking towards her. When she asked what happened, he just slapped her in the face and told her to go down below deck. Terry Joe once more went above deck when the water levels began to rise on her level. She ran into Harvey again and asked him if the boat was sinking, to which he replied, yes. He then asked her if she had seen the dinghy that was moored to the yacht break loose. When she told him she had, he jumped into the waters toward the loose vessel. Left alone, Terry Joe remembered the single life raft aboard the vessel and embarked on the tiny boat out into the ocean. Without food, water, or any covering to protect her from the heat of the sun, Terry Joe spent 84 grueling hours before she was rescued by the Captain Theo. Unbeknownst to Terry Joe, by the time she woke up on November 12th, Harvey had already drowned his wife and stabbed the rest of Terry Joe's family to death. He likely killed his wife to collect on her $20,000 double indemnity insurance policy. When Terry Joe's father witnessed him killing her, he must have killed the doctor and then proceeded to kill the rest of her family. He then sunk the yacht that they were on and escaped on his dinghy with his wife's drowned corpse as evidence. 
His dinghy was found by the freighter the Gulf Lion and brought to a U.S. Coast Guard site. Harvey told the Coast Guard that the yacht had broken down while he was on the dinghy. He was still with them when he heard that Terry Joe had been discovered. Oh my God, Harvey reportedly stammered when he heard the news. Why, that's wonderful. The next day, Harvey killed himself in his motel room, slitting thigh, ankle, and throat with a double-edged razor. To this day, why Harvey decided to let young Terry Joe Duperalt live is unknown. Some at the time hypothesized that he had some kind of latent desire to be caught, as little else would explain why he would have no qualms killing the rest of her family but mysteriously left Terry Joe Duperalt alive. Whatever the case, this bizarre act of mercy resulted in the media phenomenon of the sea waif that captured the nation. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you like the show, please share a link to this episode on all your social media, tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review. I might read your review here in the podcast. For those of you who are a bit tired of hearing about the demonic possession of Angela, I completely understand. So today is going to be the last day that I read correspondence from you about the episode. It's just become overwhelming. I still have a boatload of emails and comments that I still need to respond to, but I know that you're probably getting tired of it. So this will be the last day, but I do have three letters that I thought were interesting and I'll share them here. If you don't want to listen to this, you can skip to the end of the episode and maybe go on to one of the archive episodes. I completely understand and I won't hold it against you. Joseph wrote, Darren Marlar, gah! I happened across your podcast while looking for something creepy to listen to. Yes, at work. Your voice and narration skills are top-notch. The stories, if really true, give my bald head goosebumps. I've binged on several shows already and I'm hooked for good. But what really made me jump on board was the episode The Demonic Possession of Angela. Your own thoughts and insights were refreshing and welcome. I also heard the uproar is too strong a word, but dissenting viewpoints in the following episode. So many people would apologize for being offensive, but you diplomatically handled those with differing viewpoints. Then you closed with a psalm. Boom! You've got the show I've been looking for. Thanks for all the work you put into the show. Looking forward to a lot more. Don't you dare get hoarse. God bless. Signed, Joseph. Shelby wrote, Hi, Darren. I'd like to start by saying I'm a huge fan of the show. I listen on my commute to work, typically, and listen a lot throughout the day, often, as I work by myself and enjoy having something to occupy my mind. I suffer from severe anxiety as well as OCD, and the stories you tell, as well as the professional manner in which you tell them, really helps me to stay in the moment and focus on right now instead of my mind wandering in 800 different directions. You do an exceptional job with every episode that I listen to, so thank you. Something else that's been on my heart is that I feel I can at least sympathize with how you felt lately 
since the controversial episode. In my eyes, it takes so much love to do what you feel is right for people, knowing full well you'll receive backlash and hate from them. I'm a musician that occasionally falls under the Christian label. However, I don't really consider myself a Christian artist. I've received my fair share of hate and backlash for songs that I've written that utilized the word damn, as well as ridicule from people for the Christian songs that I've written being featured on Christian promotional sites. It's a never-won battle in the world of entertainment. I'm glad you recognize that you'll probably never please everyone. I really agreed with what you said recently that anyone who gets so upset over a Bible verse that they stop listening to the entire podcast that they claim to love is definitely the person with the problem. In closing, I'd just like to offer my support and prayers. You're doing an excellent job, and I hope the odd, angry person here and there does little or nothing to distract or discourage you. Just remember that pretty much every show, band, artist, author, director has done some work that somebody didn't like. You're doing a great job regardless. Signed, Shelby. And then Terry said, Dear Darren, I just started listening to podcasts for the last six or seven months. I somehow found myself on a lore podcast and enjoyed it so much I decided to search for other sites I may enjoy after listening to all available podcasts from lore. I found myself doing a little spot listening when I ended up on Weird Darkness. I'm a 54-year-old dude from California. I've never taken the time to call radio stations, send in complaints or compliment letters anywhere before, but after hearing you read the feedback from the Demonic Possession of Angela episode, I felt I had to today. Let me start from the beginning. I'm not sure where, it may have been Facebook or YouTube videos, but there's something so familiar slash comforting about your voice. I watch very little TV, but there are times I find when I very much enjoy listening to your podcasts. If it's walking my mutt or working on my motorcycle, there has not been one miss or boring episode. I have enjoyed every single one. Even the topics I'm not a huge fan of, I've enjoyed. Not a Bigfoot fan, but love the paranormal stuff. Anyways, after listening to you and your seasonal shows, I felt that the way you talked about the children and donating, I found like I heard a hint of faith in your voice. Now this is about you, not me, but just a little background on me. I am on an incredible path of re-establishing my faith. I have been blessed with the Christian faith and am currently trying to find the best way to do my duty of not shoving my faith down people's throats, but helping them find their way to God. Now back to you. Little by little, I have heard you wearing your faith on your sleeve, walking that fine line, but being proud of who you are, yet still enjoying the subject matter that you do day after day, month after month. And then, after going to your webpage, I find out that you're not shy, but proudly let your sight reflect who you are, that you proudly share your faith with your Weird Darkness family, but you have it there, not shutting it down their throats. That's like getting three extra scoops of chocolate on your banana split, brother. So I felt that I wanted to let you know how much I enjoy all that, and of course, signed up. But being on disability, I can't afford to be a sponsor, but hopefully one day I will. So I was hoping to drop you a line this weekend, but after listening to the feedback of that Angela episode, I had to send this to you today. Bless you, and you are on target with the saying, if you try and please everyone, you'll end up pleasing no one. 
This day and age, everyone's happy to believe in nothing, standing up for no one, until they get offended. Then watch out, they come out of the woodwork. This is for entertainment. You are not reading this from the pulpit. I'm secure in my faith and was not offended by the writer's point of view. Once again, this was entertainment. Chill the heck out, people. Darren wasn't eating babies. Now, not everyone was offline, and to those, you tell them where you stand and why and that you respect them. I know a lot of people that could learn from you, brother. This would be a much better world if more people felt the way you do. Truly, bro. Your professionalism, consistency, and compassion in dealing with sensitive subjects is beyond reproach. The Weird Darkness daily notification on my phone is the highlight of my day, other than my daily prayer notifications, of course. Keep fighting the good fight. Regards, Terry White. I really appreciate all the letters, uh, the emails, the uh, comments that people have made on the podcast and YouTube. It really has been appreciated. And if you want to continue sending me emails about this particular episode, the demonic possession of Angela, you're more than welcome to, but I think I'm done and uh, I really don't want to take up so much time in the podcast just reading emails. <laughs> so uh, if you want to send them to me, you're more than welcome to. You can email me, uh, drop me notes, whatever, uh, at WeirdDarkness.com. Just click on the contact page. If you would like to support the show, like Terry says he'd like to someday, well, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and early access to the Weird But True video series. And right now, only patrons can watch Freaky Ways 15 Famous People Died and the giant Robert Wadlow, Tallest Man on Earth. The newest public Weird But True video episodes are available right now. You can watch those on the Weird But True page at WeirdDarkness.com. Patrons also get exclusive content like chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. And I'm currently narrating the audiobook Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, and you can hear all the chapters starting with Chapter 1 and the rest – I'm up to Chapter 27 now – when you become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Lake Club Ghost was written by Troy Taylor. Orphaned at Sea was written by Gabe Paoletti. My Closet Door was posted at YourGhostStories.com. And Rasputin was written by Ellen Lloyd. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. You can join the Weirdo Family, the social group. You can get stories that I didn't use in the podcast and a lot more. I make sure there is something new every day at WeirdDarkness.com. You just gotta surf around sometimes to find it. And now that we are coming out of the dark, remember Matthew 16, 18, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.